turn to Psalm 73 this morning. Psalm 73, I'll be reading out of the ESV this morning. <clears throat> I'm not going to read the passage before, uh, before the sermon. We'll read it as we go along. It's a passage that I think you know. Um, I will just read uh, a couple of verses so you can remember which psalm it is. Uh, and uh, I want to tell you, first of all, why uh, it's on my heart to speak to you out of this psalm under God's hand this morning. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's a way of saying to the true believers in Israel, to the true Israel. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, says Asaph, the seer, the prophet. The very godly man, uh, well known for many psalms, he says, my feet had nearly slipped. Oops. Thank you very much. Turn on the button. I might need your help there, Mark. Doesn't seem like the light's coming on. So this godly man says, my feet almost slipped. Ooh, that's better. <laughs> and he doesn't mean a small slip and trip. He means I, I almost apostatized. I almost left the faith. And uh, we want to take a journey with this godly man and get under this word and into his experience and find out what happened to him. And what is it that's so important about the way that he almost slipped that God had to put it in his word because we might almost slip also. And we do slip sometimes. Um, the reason that I want to speak to you about uh, this psalm is because of the last phrase. Let's read the last verse together. He says, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell... Of all your works. Now that's how, that's how it ends. The psalm is speaking to us about someone who has something to tell. A believer that has something to tell. And we, God calls us to be people who have something to tell. Now you've noticed that the psalm is about God's goodness. It starts and ends with God's goodness. It begins, truly God is good. Truly God is good to His people. And it ends with the verse I just read, but for me it is good, same word in Hebrew, it is good, it's good to be, to near, God, to be near God. Um, but uh, the psalmist was not always someone who had something to tell about the goodness of God. And we want to understand how he became someone who had nothing to tell had no witness, had lost his light. Because in these dark days, I find wherever I uh, meet up with Christians, uh, 
that uh, there is a great danger of, 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 of us losing our light and losing our witness because of a p- particular danger that we're facing in these days. So I want to say to you, awake, O Zion, and put on strength. For we are in dark days. Perhaps, as I was saying to some last night, Satan has been unchained. We're at the end of the thousand years and perhaps our Lord and Savior may come again soon, may come even in the lifetime of some here. Maybe the glorious coming is, is near. Maybe time is wrapping up. And if it is, if God's given us the privilege of li- living in the last, last days, then uh, we need to awake and put on strength. So, let's look together at this psalm. Um, and we're going to look at it in three parts because it falls... Uh, Asaph helps us to understand what happened to him in three clear parts. First of all, his downslide. His downslide. Second of all, the turning point as he began to come back to the Lord. And finally, the radiant witness. The radiant witness. He had something to tell. Something great to tell. The downslide. Well, we need to think about, first of all, the reason for his downslide and then the progression of his downslide. What was the reason for this godly man's almost slipping? He tells us, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, to true believers. But as for me, but as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. A dangerous, perilous fall of a godly person. And he tells us the reason. Here's the reason. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit later, but you'll see as he describes these these wicked uh, and arrogant, we find that they are rich and powerful and in his day as in our day, usually the rich and powerful are the ones in control. Okay? So now, you can think about the people in control of our world today, and perhaps in your country. I say your country because now we're in France. We've been, this is, this is in a sense our country. We have other problems than you. Um, the other forms of the same problem. Other people that are controlling our society But you have people controlling your society and perhaps some of them may be prosperous and and wicked. So we see that this is not so far off from where you're at, is it? Okay, so I think maybe there may be a word of God to us uh, today that hits right where we are. So he said, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The reason, he says, was envy, but not really. Because there are fruit sins and root sins. Now the fruit sin was envy. He became envious of the rich and powerful of his day. But uh, behind that sin was another sin. In fact, a couple more sins, we'll see. And behind that sin of envy was losing sight of the goodness of God. He says, truly God is good. But you know what? When you become envious, what have you lost sight of? What do you no longer believe? Envy is a form of saying, God is not good enough to me. 
look what he's doing for that person and not doing for me. And so you just cannot see the goodness of God as it truly is anymore. And you know, dear people, that a Christian's life normally is to be built every day and every moment upon a a true conviction and confidence in the infinite goodness of God to him. The Scripture says that without faith it is impossible to to, to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That's a way of talking about the goodness of God. Your pastor quoted in his prayer that God has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's who you are. That's the goodness of God. He's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And Paul says in Ephesians that the fruit of light is that which is right and good and true. And God has called you into His goodness. Let me just give you an example of what I mean by that. In Jeremiah chapter 31, we read this. Don't turn, don't turn there. I'll just read it to you. It says, um, Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. And God says, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. That is the plan of God. And the psalmist said that surely goodness and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life. And follow is too weak. The Hebrew word means pursue. He says the place of any believer, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Because God is good and doeth good. This is His nature, dear people. He is goodness. Satan may be powerful, But God is good. God is infinitely powerful, but the reason that His power is a wonder is because He is good and doeth good. So, the psalmist Asaph had lost sight of this one fact upon which we all must base our Christian life every day. That God is abundantly good. Do you remember when Moses said, um, show me your glory? Do you remember what God said to him? This is very important. Don't ever forget this. God said to him when he said, show me your glory. God said, I will cause to pass before you all my goodness. You see, isn't that amazing? I will cause to pass before you, Moses, all my glorious goodness. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, the Lord God, full of mercy and loving kindness, slow to anger and pardoning sin and iniquity and transgression. Our God is full of goodness. But you see, the psalmist lost sight of that. And so do you and I whenever we begin to envy So, that's the reason for his downfall. But the progression is important to us. The progression happens in four stages. There's observation, obsession, outrage, and obstacle. So, first of all, observation. 
how do we usually fall as Christians and, and decline spiritually? And even if, if your decline is not like his or your decline in the past or present or the future, it will have some common factors, okay? So let's think about it. What happens? First of all, observation. Read with me in verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw. Observation. When I saw. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, for him it happened like this. Of course, people have always been wicked, but at some point in his life, I wish I knew exactly what it was that happened. But he says, I became envious one day when I saw. Something happened to him to bring into view, to bring into his view in a way he'd never seen it before, the incredible wickedness of the people around him in his society. And you see, in the last few years, perhaps in America, certainly in France, some things have happened to bring into our view, and we saw, didn't we have seen, perhaps in a way never before in the last years, and uh, through the events of COVID, but, but not just that. Our, our, your country has been downsliding morally, hasn't it? And you have seen the wicked, the wickedness, the evil of people. And so, as the psalmist, you will be tempted as you observe to make the mistake that he made. Because when we see evil, we are immediately in a place of temptation. Did you know that? Whenever anyone else sins, we're immediately in a place of temptation. Because their evil may cause us to react in the wrong way. And he did. And we do. So that's the first thing. The first part of the downslide is observation. The second part is obsession. Now, I want to read to you how he describes the wicked and the rich of whom he became envious. Okay? But I want you to notice the unbelievably and overdone detail with which he describes them and knows them. Alright? But before I read it to you, I must, I must tell you that this description is not what he thinks now as he's writing the psalm about. It's not what he thinks about the wicked now. It's what he thought then. He's going to tell us how he saw them then when he was not doing well. The reason I know is he changes, uh, he changes the whole picture a little bit later. And um, in verse 18, if you want to just look at it, he says, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they're destroyed in a moment. Well, you don't envy somebody in a slippery place, do you? Okay? So what we're going to read now, as we're talking about how we as Christians can become obsessed with the evil people around us and the evil they're doing, um, what he's describing is how he saw them then. And he's got on some bad glasses. I won't tell you what kind of glasses he has on yet. We're going to discover that in a moment. But they're wrong glasses. The lenses are wrong. Okay? So let's read. Verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are sleek and fat. They are not in trouble, as others are. Think of the, some of the people that frustrate you in the world today or in the American society today. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. He knows about their vices. He knows about their bodies. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Very interesting. Their hearts overflow with follies. 
They scoff. He knows about their conversation and the way they talk. They tend to talk and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. So you see, they are, they are people that are in control. Uh, he's not just envying people that have more stuff than him. Okay, he's talking about people that have power over him. All right. Um, he says they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Did you ever notice when someone uh, struts his tongue and is very sure of himself that a lot of people immediately believe him and turn to them? And he's talking about that sort of thing. And he says, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, he says. Always at ease, they increase in riches. You see, we have here a man who knows about their conversation, about their bodies, about what they look like, about the way they talk, about how they are, about how their life is. They're not stricken. They increase in wisdom. They're always at ease. They're this, they're that, they're this, they're that. And in these verses, in these this whole section of the psalm, first section of the psalm, God is not mentioned except one time to tell what other people say about God. God is just not in His horizon. He's not thinking about God and His goodness. In the last 11 verses of the psalm, God is mentioned 17 times. But you see, when we become obsessed by the wicked and Christians get together, you know what they talk about? I don't need to tell you, do you? Well, it's not God. They're not sitting there talking about God's goodness and how great God is and His kingdom and His glory and salvation and all the rest. We're talking about how bad things are and how bad this, this person is and how bad these rulers are. And that's, this is the slip. This is the danger. My foot almost slipped. I went from observation to obsession. And then there's outrage. Read with me in verse 13. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He's talking about the believer's life. He's saying the life of a believer, he's outraged. All in vain, I've tried to live a, if I, let's put it this way, a Christian life. And what, what good is it to walk righteously with God? Now he's really upset with God. And do you see his exaggeration there? He says, all in vain, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. He's talking about this fact that, you know, God deals with me all the time about sin, sin, sin. He's always sanctifying me. And sanctifying means correcting. And correcting means discipline. And God has a controversy with me all the time. And see, so he doesn't see that this is the treasure of the saints. The discipline of the Lord is the treasure of the saints. But he doesn't see it. You know, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And He scourges every son whom He receives. God is treating us as sons, says Hebrews. But He doesn't see any of that because of the glasses. You see, He's just 
He's just in outrage about what his life is like compared to that of, of the wicked. He's not the only one. You may remember Job saying this. Can, can I just read you this one thing Job said at one point? He says, What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. You see the exaggeration again. How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? You see, we can be very upset with God about the Christian life when, we, when our feet begin to slip. I'm stricken all the time. God has this controversy with me all the time about I still need to change. Woe is me and look at how easy it is for these unbelievers. Oh my, my, my. What an attitude. How far he slipped from the day when he could say, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That is a false slip, a long slip. Well, then finally, after the observation and the obsession and the outrage, um, there is the obstacle. Because when we decline like this, very often, most times, we just run into a wall. I don't know if you've ever been in a spiritual decline. I certainly have. The mission field. And um, I've had to pray the last, last verse of Psalm 119. I've gone astray like a sheep. Come and fi find your servant. For I forget not your commandments. <laughs> but... He runs into a wall, and this usually happens to us. And he says, he says this in verse 16. But when I thought, how to understand this? How could it be so that God would let things be like this in my society, in my country? And the wicked prospering and oppressing and doing as they will and things getting worse and worse. As Paul says, evil men and impostors going from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's what he describes as what will happen in the last days. Well, how could you be good? How could you be full of goodness? How could the earth be full of the glory and the goodness of God? When I thought how to understand this, it appeared grievous in my sight, he said. It really means it, was, it made it just more painful. I had more anguish when I tried to work it out by my reason. He wanted to believe that God was good. But seeing society and being obsessed with the evil of society, he just couldn't, couldn't hold those things together. And it was more and more painful to him to be in this sort of situation. And so when, we're, when our feet have slipped in this way, we, we tend to hit the wall and I can't think my way out of this. Well, now we've looked at the downslide. Let's look at the turning point. The way that the, the psalmist turns around is the way that we often turn around. And if you, you may find this in your experience, it happens really in three steps. Often the first thing that turns a person around that's really falling away from the Lord is for some reason he comes to himself by the grace of God and he thinks about what his attitude and his present situation and behavior are doing to other people. Notice how he says this. He says, 
in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, he just said, I'm, I'm stricken every day and in vain I've washed my... And he says, but if I had spoken like that out loud, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So he comes to himself a little bit. This is the first sort of positive thing. And he says, I suddenly realized that if I put outside of me by words what's inside of me, in my heart and in my thoughts, I'm going to cause God's very own people a lot of temptation and trouble. I'll betray them. I've become a betrayer in my heart, a betrayer of God, a doubter of the goodness of God. And so a lot of times, think of the, the, the alcoholic parent who wakes up and sees what he or she is doing to his or her children by being an alcoholic. And sometimes that's the first step back. No. And why is that? Because really you've just taken that that cord of selfishness, which is thinking all about me, okay? Um, I'm stricken every day, and I this, and I that, and I don't have what the rich have, and I, I, I. And you've taken that, and you've at least broken that one selfishness because you're thinking about somebody else for once and what your life is doing to them. And perhaps that's what you need to do if you're in that sort of situation is wake up and think, what are you doing to the, to the children of God's people? So that's the first thing. The second thing is that um, he says in verse 17, or maybe I should read 16, but I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their final end. So the next step was to pass from, from having God as an object of your speculation to an object of your worship. Okay? He came into the sanctuary and believe you me, Asaph, who was the hymn writer for the people, <laughs> he'd been into the sanctuary a lot. It's not that he wasn't going to church. Alright? But he really came to church this time. You know what I mean? Not just the body. He came into the sanctuary of God with this attitude I have been speculating on God and judging God and saying, how can God be this? And thinking about God, God's been sort of under me as the object of my thought and now I come and I realize I am under God. He is the living God. I better listen to Him. And I come and fall down as a worshiper. And at some point, if you've declined spiritually or if you are declining spiritually, this is the only solution. You come and you forget your, your, your thoughts and you, and whatever it is, your frustrations, and you come and you say, I will come before my God and I will fall down. And I will behold His face and say, Lord, show me what I need to know. For I am but a child. And so the psalmist did that. He came somehow by God's grace into the sanctuary as a worshiper. And he says, then, in the sanctuary, I discerned <laughs> change. I discerned. I saw. The lenses were changed. And notice what he says. And this is the third step that he abandoned a worldly framework, outlook, lenses, glasses, a worldly way of looking at life and the evil in it for a heavenly way. And now, this is what I want to tell you. 
His basic problem was not envy. It was worldliness. The reason he envied, well, let let me read you these verses and then I'll explain it. He says this. Now, notice how he looks at the the rich and powerful and evil, but through the glasses of eternity. All right? He says, truly, verse 18, you set them slippery places, you make them to fall to and how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakens. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Now he looks from the true point of view, not looking at them in the here and now. When he's saying, oh, they're always at ease, here and now, (laughs) they're always at ease. You see, he was seeing everything he said about them was true. But it was a half-truth because it's worldly. It's a worldly way. Are you looking at the society in America in a worldly way? Just about how America is here and now and how you would like the here and now to be? Are you living for the here and now? Is this your paradise? Is this your eternal life here? Or do you want God to deliver you out of this present evil age and to a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness reigns. Which is it? And so you see, we need a call that we must not let heaven be eclipsed in the American church. And we must not. And I, I want to say it lovingly, and I, I, I've preached this over and over to myself, because my heart is the same as yours. We must not look at the evil in this world from a worldly perspective. We must not think that the great thing is make America great. That's not what we're about. We want the Lord Jesus to come in glory and set up His glorious kingdom which is not called America. America will fall like every other empire and kingdom that's ever been in human history. So will France. France has already fallen. It used to be in the place in which America is now. But he sees things from this eternal perspective. And he says, you set them in slippery places. He's saying, do you see this place of riches and prosperity and power? That is the most slippery and perilous place that an unregenerate man could possibly be placed because it's one centimeter from sliding into hell, in eternal hell. Jesus said so. He said, how hard it is for the rich to come into the kingdom of God. Oh Lord, let me not be rich, says the, Proverbs, says the Proverbs, lest I turn away from you. But give me what I need. Don't make me rich or poor, if possible. Those extremes have some really big temptations. And you see, God has placed from an eternal perspective, God has placed the wicked of your society and your country and mine in a slippery, slippery place because maybe He will come again in two years and it will be like a dream and all will be gone. Well, that's the turning point where He puts on this new point of view. and see, You see... Uh, he, he sees everything completely differently about them. 
Nothing has changed about the rich and the prosperous of his time. It's still as bad as it was. But he has changed. Now let's talk about the last thing. The radiant witness that he has become now. The radiant witness. The first thing I want you to notice is that he sees himself, his past behavior in a different way. He says this. A radiant witness is always a humble person. He says in verse 21, When my soul was embittered all that time of my downfall, my decline, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. Oh, Mr. Expert about the rich and prosperous. He knew all the details of their lives. He'd gone through all the social media and he had the best channels of information and knew everything about them. But now he says, I was brutish and ignorant. I didn't know about them because I wasn't seeing the most important thing about them. The eternal truth about them being in slippery places. So he says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. And now God comes back into the picture. I was like a beast toward you. He's saying, the problem all that time, I thought the problem was you. Are you really good? The problem was me. I was like a beast, like a savage beast toward God. Distrusting Him, questioning Him, telling Him you strike me every day and every morning you, you rebuke me and what are you doing? I was like a savage beast toward God. And how many times we could say in some measure, oh, I was like a savage beast toward my God. But then he, tell, he, he now sees the goodness of God once more. And he sees his life, which he said was so bad, all in vain, I've kept myself pure and I'm stricken, oh, what a victim. But notice how he sees himself now. Read with me from verse 23. Having said he was like a beast toward God, he said, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. No more envy. Nothing on earth. I don't need anything. I'm full, full, full of your goodness. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good. It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all His works. And I want to end just showing you this goodness of God that's in your life every day. Think about this, first of all. You're gripped. You're guided. You're to be glorified. You're gratified. And you're guarded. All of that by the goodness of God. And I'm going to go super quick. First of all, you as a Christian are a person who's gripped. He says he was brutish and ignorant toward God, but in verse 23 he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. 
Even all that time when I was declining and upset with you and not believing and making mistakes and not seeing things right and looking in a worldly way, nevertheless, all that time, I was continually with you. And if you understand what that means, have you ever seen a, a father, there's a busy street or some danger in front of him and he takes his, his little boy's hand and he seizes that hand and really grips it, and the child knows, I ain't going nowhere. I'm continually with you. <laughs> you, see, you see that? And our version says, you hold my hand. The French version says, tu m'as saisi par la main droite. You see the difference? <laughs> well, when I looked up the Hebrew definition, it says, to seize, to seize, often with the accessory idea of holding in possession. And the French version says, you have seized me by the right hand. He says, I was like a beast toward you, but nevertheless, I am continually with you because you have seized me by my right hand. What do we call that? We call that grace. Grace is defined by the word nevertheless. Peter, Peter, Tonight you will deny me three times. Nevertheless, I have prayed for you. The goodness of God never changed. Wherever God is, He is the same. Good. Wherever you are spiritually, if you're a believer, God is the same toward you. Good. Good. Abounding in loving kindness. And He will pull you out of your decline and your darkness at some point. That you have this precious privilege that the Lord God loves you and you are precious in His sight. And He will not let you go. He will not let you go. It cost Him nails in the hands to lay hold upon you. Paul said that I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. And when, when the Lord says in John 10, He says that the hireling, who's not the good shepherd, the hireling, he runs away when the wolf comes because he doesn't care about the sheep and the wolf snatches the sheep. And then you go a little bit further in the passage and Jesus says, My sheep know me. They hear my voice and I give them eternal life. They follow me and no one can snatch them from my hand because I'm the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. And let me say this. To lay hold on you in a way that you would never be able to get, get away from him, Jesus had to lay hold of your very humanity and never let it go. The Son of God is man forever. And the reason is, He will never let you go. So He had to lay hold on your humanity and keep it forever. And when He laid hold on you, to lay hold on you, He had to lay hold on your sin. And the Scripture says, Our sorrows He has borne. He laid hold on you with everything about you. Your sins, your mistakes, all of it. And He laid hold of it. And He did not let go. He would not let go. 
And this is the goodness of God towards us. The goodness that the psalmist lost sight of. Thinking more about the evil of his world than about the amazing goodness in which he lived every day. So we are gripped, but we're also guided. He says, guide me with your counsel. You guide me with your counsel. It's wonderful to be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. You know, it's difficult to live as a Christian in the world, isn't it? It's complicated sometimes. Super complicated. But one thing we know is the goodness of God, because God is good with us. He's not just letting us live this Christian life. He's actually with us, guiding us through it, guiding us. We never do anything alone. Scripture says that Christ has been made unto us wisdom from God. That in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All that we need to navigate through this life. To navigate through your health problems. To navigate through being a single person when you'd love to be married. To navigate through difficult situations with family members and your boss and your work and your, your country and everything. And God says, I will guide you through all of it. I, and He shall guide me with His counsel. And that's how the psalmist now sees himself. Oh, how good to be guided. And then he says afterward, you will receive me to glory. So gripped, guided, glorified one day. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. Afterward, dear people, he will receive you to glory. The word receive is the same one when the scripture says about Enoch in Genesis that he took him. And he was no more. He took him. He received him. And he's going to receive you just like Enoch. To glory. To glory. To glory. To glory. And the Scripture says that we are not only gripped and guided and to be glorified, but we're also gratified. That means satisfied. Okay? But I needed a G word. Notice what he says in verse uh, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Well, that's a different perspective. Whom have I in heaven but you? The day will come when you and I will be so um, amazed and satisfied with God Himself that those whom we love on earth and whom we will love better in heaven and be closer to in heaven will seem like a shadow compared to God. Whom have I in heaven but you? That's the sixth sola. Did you know there were six? The sixth sola is that God only we have in heaven. There's a sense in which we have the Lord in heaven. He will give us to I am yours and you are mine. Revelation speaks of the fact that when this day comes, God will say, I am your God and you are my people and we will have the living God as our God in a way that's just uh, its beyond what I could tell you. I don't understand it myself. But what he's saying is whatever's going to make me happy for eternity in heaven, it's, what, it's what's got to make me happy here on earth. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, I desire nothing but you. So now he's saying that there 
There's, there are wonders and the goodness of God for all eternity, but it's already invaded my presence. My presence. And I, and I can be satisfied. I don't need to. I don't need to be rich. And then he says that he's guarded. He's guarded. He says in verse 26, My flesh and my heart fail. Wow, did they ever fail. He almost slipped completely. Should you worry about, I can lose my salvation? Where if you're, if you're, if you're a true believer, this is the, this is the psalm of the perseverance of the saints. He says, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He will bring me back. He will renew me. He will not allow me to finally and totally fall. Because God Himself is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And He's just piling one thing on another. And He sees, well, what happened to you before? Why didn't you see all this before? Why didn't you look at yourself like that before? And why, when you came and talked to the other believers, were you not talking about these things before? Why were you only talking about the, the evil and how bad things were? What a change. What an amazing change. I call this the prodigal psalmist. <laughs> he went to a faraway land and he came back and he says, now I see. And so, finally, he's become someone that can tell something. And in the last verse he says, it's for me, it's good to be near God. Even in this society, with all the old people changed, that's the amazing change. It's to be near God. I've made Him my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Now that's somebody that has something to tell. When he was concentrated on the evil of the world, he didn't have any witness. What could he tell other people? In fact, he says, if I should say something, I'll betray. But now he's He's someone that says, oh, if I could only tell you what I have. I'm gripped by the goodness of God. And I'm guided. And I'm going to be glorified. And I'm gratified. And I'm guarded. And I'm kept. And I'm blessed. And it's good for me to be near God. And I'd like to tell you about that God. You can be near Him too. That's what we need to be. We need to be radiant with His goodness that we may have something to tell to a world that's fallen far away. May God help us and bless us uh, through the psalmist and, and teach us these things. Let's pray.